A small boy was writing a letter to God about the Christmas presents that he badly wanted. He began this way, Dear God, I've been good for six months now. But after a moment's reflection, he crossed out six months and he wrote three months. After a pause, he crossed that out and he put two weeks. And still there was another pause and he crossed out two weeks. He got up from the table and he went over to the nativity scene that had Mary and Joseph. And he picked up the figure of Mary and he very gently wrapped it in a cloth and he put it in a drawer in his room. And then he went back to writing and started again. Dear God, he wrote, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> he went on to a life of extortion and crime, apparently. <laughs> well, let's pray and see what God has for us tonight. Father, we thank you for your presence here that you so willingly came, that there was no extortion involved in all, that you came of your own free will to die on our behalf, that you were born as a baby. You lived like us. Father, experienced everything we experienced yet without sin. And Father, we thank you that we can know you tonight, not only as a baby, not only as a grown man, but as our Lord and Savior. We thank you for your presence here tonight with us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever been in a cave? Now, I don't mean a little cave like you can look here and say, oh, like I walked into a cave or a man cave. I'm not talking about those, so if that's what you had in mind. No, no, I'm talking about a real cave, the kind where you need gear and headlamps because, you know, you are going way in and way under. Well, in July of 2018, we went on a Disney cruise, and one of our excursions was to, to the Rio Secreto. It's in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. It is an underground river that goes for seven and a half miles, and it's about 60 to 70 feet underground. You are sometimes walking, sometimes crawling, sometimes swimming, sometimes swimming underwater as you work your way further into the cave. The pictures are nothing like actually being there. My mom went with us, and she was, well, older than me at the time. We'll leave it at that. She, you know, but so it was quite an experience. And, well, you enter through a, ground, through a hole in the ground much like this one. And like all caves, wildlife abounds, including, of course, what you would expect to find in a cave, bats. It was by far the best excursion we have ever been on in our lives. We liked it so much, we're actually going back this September to do it again. And it's not even offered as an excursion on Disney. We're doing this one on our own. I think the real excursion will be whether or not we make it all the way in and across the bay in Mexico and make it back all in one piece. We'll see. At about one point, after walking into the caves about an hour, we were at least 60 feet underground. You could, see, you could see root systems that were reaching down from the trees 60 feet above into the water where we were. And our guide asked us if we wanted to see what a real cave looked like. Now, I thought we were already in a real cave, thinking she was going to take us off on some sort of side trip that was different. 
than the usual tour, I eagerly agreed. And so without hesitation, the guide reached up to her headlamp, the only light in the cave, and she shut it off. And she said, that's what a real cave looks like. You have never seen darkness until you are 60 feet plus underground and lost in the depths of a cave system from which you do not know how to return. It is a darkness you can feel. It is an uncanny sensation. Caves can be really scary places, especially when all the lights are out. There are things in the water with you, don't forget. And of course, don't forget the bats. It's not uncommon in the total darkness of those moments for many people to begin to get a little edgy. And if the lights are off too long, some people will begin to panic. Most people don't like the darkness. It seems we learn from an early age to be fearful of the darkness. Maybe it's instinctual. That's why night lights are so popular in little children's bedrooms. That little four-watt light bulb is able to chase away just enough darkness to bring a measure of comfort to children who are afraid of the dark. Even as grown-ups, there's still an inborn fear of the dark. If you hear a strange noise in your house and it's in the middle of the afternoon, you might think, well, that's a little odd and get, not give it a second thought and keep going about your business. But if you hear a strange noise in your totally darkened house at 3 o'clock in the morning, your wife will begin to nudge you, naked or not, and tell you to go out and find out what's going on. Somebody's in for a real surprise one way or the other. That's all I got to say. In the middle of the night, darkness is uncomfortable. Darkness can be confusing. Darkness breeds fear. Darkness at times can be terrifying. In Isaiah chapter 9, God talks about people sitting around in darkness. They're uncomfortable. They're more than just a little confused, and they are seriously afraid for their future. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, two chapters earlier in chapter 7, Isaiah promised that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the Jews had long considered this section of Isaiah to be messianic, to be prophetic about the coming Messiah. And here's the thing. More than 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Jews returned to Judea from their long time of captivity in Babylon. And about that time, Jewish religious leaders began to write commentaries on various books of the Bible that they called Targums. One of those Targums dealt with the prophecies of Isaiah. And that Targum, written more than 500 years before Christ was born, commented on Isaiah 9.6. Here's what it said. And there was called his name from of old, Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, He who lives forever, the Messiah in whose days peace shall increase upon us. So for over 500 years, the Jewish people knew this section of Isaiah spoke of the coming Christ. And Isaiah, in chapter 7, told Israel that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin. But now two chapters later in chapter 9, Isaiah continues that prophecy. And he tells them where that child of that virgin would minister and he tells us what that child of that virgin would accomplish. First, Isaiah told Israel where the child would minister. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair shall not go on forever, though soon the land of Zebulon and Naphtali 
will be under God's contempt and judgment. Yet in the future, these very lands, Galilee and northern Transjordan, will, where lies the road to the sea, will be filled with glory. Notice Isaiah said the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. When we were just in the back before we came out here to begin the service, I said I was going to be talking on Zebulon and Naphtali. And Tamson looked over at me and said, they're Klingons, aren't they? I said, no, they're not, they're not Klingons for those who are uninformed. They're not Klingons. These are sons of Jacob who later became Israel. Let me give you a little history. Years before this prophecy, shortly after the death of King Solomon, Ten of the tribes of the Jews rebelled against their king and, and split off to form, of the na- to form the nation that would be called Israel in the north, while the remaining two tribes in the south became known as the land of Judah. Zebulon and Naphtali were two of those ten tribes in the northern nation of Israel, but they were relatively insignificant tribes. Only Issachar is mentioned less often. They were rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament and were never spoken of having any important role in anything. That is, until God mentioned them here in Isaiah chapter 9. In fact, these are the only two tribes, the only tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel that God includes in connection with the coming Messiah. Now I wonder why that is. Well, let's think about where Jesus lived for a minute. Of course, we all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem in the land of Judah. But then Herod learned about the prophecy of a king being born in Bethlehem from the Magi, and he wasn't happy. He saw this new king as a threat to his own throne and his own kingdom, and he sought to kill him. So God warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt, and Joseph took Mary, and he did exactly that. He went down to the land of Egypt, where they remained until Herod died. With that threat to Jesus removed, the family returned to their home, but not their home in Bethlehem. No, they returned to the home they had left years before, their home in Nazareth. And Nazareth was in the region of Galilee. Guess which tribes inherited the land of Galilee? Naphtali and Zebulon. Matthew tells us that earlier in his ministry, Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isn't that interesting? Galilee was once inhabited by Zebulon and Naphtali. Where Jesus began his ministry, he resided, when he began his ministry, he resided in Capernaum. In Galilee. It was in Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. It was in Galilee that he selected the majority of his 12 disciples. And it was in Galilee that he spent most of his time preaching and teaching and performing various healings and miracles. Jesus literally brought the light of his ministry to the people who lived in the land that had once been Zebulon and Naphtali. So Isaiah told us where the child of the virgin would minister. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say what that child will do. Look again with me in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
In the day of Jesus, Galilee, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, was considered a very dark land. It was sort of a, a backwater region where only the poor and uneducated lived. It wasn't an enlightened area. When Peter and John spoke before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, it says that the leaders were amazed uh, because these men were obviously Galileans, and they were unschooled and ordinary men, and yet they spoke with courage and power. When Philip told Nathaniel that he found the Messiah, Nathaniel exclaimed, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But Jesus lived in this obscure part of Israel on purpose. He lived there so he could drive home that his life was meant to be a very powerful light in a very dark world. During his ministry, Jesus said this, I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer wander in the darkness. But what was that light meant to change in our lives? Isaiah 9-2 tells us, The people who walk in darkness shall see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shined. They lived in the land of the shadow of death. Death can be a very dark and scary prospect. But Jesus came into this world to bring light, the light of his hope, to a world afraid of the darkness of death. Without Jesus, there is no light to push back the darkness of death. And the grave remains a final door from which there is no return. Because no one has ever come back from the dead if Jesus wasn't who he said he is. But Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus sheds a powerful light on our fear of the blackness of death. And for us, there is no longer any reason to fear. But his light means more than just victory over the darkness of the grave. It also means that Jesus provides light for our lives as we live them now. Jesus explained this to his disciples. Isaiah 9.3 tells us that is what was promised with the coming Messiah. With his coming, he enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoiced before you as people rejoice at a harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Their joy is like people who knew that there would be a harvest. They were assured that there would be food on their table because there was food in their pantry. They knew their needs would be taken care of. They knew that someone was backing them up. Someone had their back. It's a little like walking to a room that you've never been in before. And if you walk into that room and there are no lights on, well, you might be a little anxious and uneasy. You don't know where the obstacles are. You don't know how the furniture is arranged. You're not certain what you might find in the dark, what might cause you to stumble and hurt. But if the lights are on, you walk in with confidence and you see exactly what you need to see. There are no longer any obstacles, no longer anything that can truly hurt you and cause you to be anxious and troubled. That's the kind of difference that Jesus brings to our lives. We are no longer walking in darkness and uneasy with anxiety. Now we walk in the light. Our lives are completely different. With the light God promises us in Isaiah, that has all changed. But how did God give us that light? How did God intend to give our lives power and hope and peace and joy? Well, Isaiah tells us. He says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God stepped into a world that was dark 
and an empty place. He came down in human form and allowed himself to be put to death for our sins. And Isaiah prophesied the Messiah was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, God could have simply given us an instruction book, and he certainly did. He gave us the Bible, and it is the the best instruction book that we could ever possess. But without God actually being with us, this book simply is a list of do's and don'ts filled with good advice and interesting stories. But our lives would lack the ultimate element that could change our lives and give us that light that we need in a very dark world. Paul Harvey once told this story. The story of a man who was a kind and decent man, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with others. But he did not believe in all that incarnation stuff about Jesus and Christianity. It didn't make sense to him, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going to church on Christmas Eve. He felt he would just be too much of a hypocrite. He would much rather stay home and wait for them there. And so he did. He stayed home. They went. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then he went back to his favorite chair by the fireside, and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound, then another and another. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window. But when he went to the door, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm, and in a desperate search for shelter, they had tried to fly through his large living room window. He didn't want to leave the things there, the poor things there, just to to freeze and die on his front porch. And he remembered that the barn was where his children stored and stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter, he thought, if he could direct the birds to it. Quickly, he put on his coat and boots, and he trampled through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the door wide and, and turned on the light, but the birds did not come in. He figured food would entice them. And he hurried back to the house. He grabbed breadcrumbs and sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the yellow-lit, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn, but walking around by walking around waving his arms, but instead they just scattered in every direction except into the warm lighted barn. Then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them he reckoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not here to hurt them, that I'm here to help them. But how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, he thought. If only I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid and show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I'd have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sound of the wind, and he heard 
there, and he stood there listening to the bells toll out the story of Jesus' birth that he had heard so long ago in songs and rejected. And he sank to his knees in the snow, and he was no longer alone. Worship team, you can make your way back up. He had found the very thing that he wanted to pass on to those birds, a means to connect. God has come in through Jesus Christ and brought his light to a land filled with darkness so that we can see, we can experience what real life is, so that he can give us meaning for the lives that we are meant to have, to be restored back in communion and fellowship with him. And it's a simple, if you don't have that tonight and you're here and you're wondering how you can get that, it's simply, it's as simple as saying, Lord, I need that. I want to know what your presence means. I want to be comforted by that. I want to know I don't have to be afraid anymore of anything, whatever the future holds. Maybe you're facing cancer or some big, big uh, thing in your life. You don't have to fear any of those things if you know who God is because you know the end of the story. And in Jesus Christ, we are more than victors. We're going to end with Silent Night.